Well, very good morning once again. Um, I hope that you're all doing well. If you can, will you please turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 27. Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 27. Um, Our theme this morning is going to be celebration. We celebrate what God has done. We celebrate another year of His faithfulness. We celebrate God's goodness to us. And today, especially, we celebrate God's work in the life of the children and the youth ministries. And praise, thanksgiving, celebration, these are all common themes throughout the Bible, and we're reminded, especially in the Psalms, I will praise God's name with song and exalt Him with thanksgiving. Let's enter His presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout triumphantly to Him in song. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Play the lyre to our God. See, it's not simply, though, that we are just thankful that God exists. Um, This theme of thanksgiving always goes hand in hand with a celebration of God's work. The scriptures use these terms for what he has done, for his goodness, for his faithfulness, for his steadfast love. The Bible, without question, is a history book. God's word for us is meant to remind us to celebrate. This morning we'll be spending our time considering the Lord's goodness to Nehemiah and to the people of Israel But I hope that we will see some common themes which will also draw us to our own church and our own thinking about Honey Ridge itself to be able to see what God has done here. And as a bit of a spoiler, our passage ends with these words. And they made, sorry, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. As I look back at this year and to see what God has done through these ministries, I can't help but rejoice, and I truly hope that our time this morning in God's Word would do the same. So let me just open in a time of prayer, and then we'll jump into our passage. Dear Father God, you are a wonderful and merciful Savior, showering steadfast love all over your people. Lord, we see We see what you have done. We see what you have accomplished in this church. We see what your hand is doing, Lord. We see your will unfolding in the lives of our children and youth. We see your grace. We see your gospel going forward in power and authority. We see changed hearts. We see new life. We see your word preached and taught. We see your mercy overflow. We see broken hearts made new. We see your comfort and the comfort for the afflicted. We see sin confronted and we see leaders equipped. We see your goodness, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us this morning to see. Help us this morning to comprehend the wonders of what you are doing. Fill us with great joy. Cause our hearts to overflow with gratitude and praise for your goodness. And as we look into your word now, Lord, speak to us. Change us. Remind us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read our passage from Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 to verse 43. Um, Just a a warning ahead of time. There are some ridiculous names here, and I apologize for how I probably will butcher most of them. Verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous celebration with thanksgiving and singing, accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers gathered from the region around Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Netaphilites, from Beth Gilgal, from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth, for they had built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. 
After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large processions that gave thanks, one that went right on the wall towards the dung gate. Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Mushalim, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with the trumpets, and Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mattiah, uh, Metaniah, son of Micaiah, uh, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, followed, as well as his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melilei, Gililei, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe went in front of them. At the fountain gate, they climbed the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and went above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half of the people on, along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the, to the broad wall, above the Ephraim gate, by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the God. The two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God, and so did I, and half the officials accompanying me, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minimum, Micaiah, Elone, Zechariah, Hananiah with the trumpets, and Mosiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Johanan, Michalijah, Eliam, and Ezer. Then the singers sang with Jezariah as the leader, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. Now my sermon this morning is going to be broken up into two parts. We're abandoning Baptist tradition all over this morning. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of background as to how we got to this point. And so from verse 27 to verse 30, we see in the first place that God is faithful. And at verse 27, Nehemiah starts with a historical reference at the dedication of the wall. So if we go back to chapter 1, we find the people of Israel shortly after coming out of a time of exile because of their sin against God. Their captor was King Nebuchadnezzar, whose nation was Babylon, who was taken over and overthrown by King Cyrus, who shortly after taking power declared that Israel could go free and return back to their homeland. It was at the same time that God was raising up Ezra, a scribe and a priest, as well as a governor named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah returned back to Jerusalem after hearing that the whole city had essentially been destroyed after they were taken captive. When he returned, he noticed the incredible amount of work which needed to be done. But first and foremost, his goal was to secure the city, to make it safe so that when people moved back in, they could live. And so he goes back to King Cyrus with a few requests. One, we want lots of money. Two, we want lots of supplies to rebuild. Three, I'm not paying for any of it. A little bit of a cheeky request from a former slave, but we see God's goodness in chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, And the king granted my requests. Why? For the gracious hand of my God was on me. Notice those words. That theme's going to reign all throughout our passage. Nehemiah then returns with others from Israel back to Jerusalem, where they begin to rebuild the wall. And they run into a ton of issues, including surrounding people who want to attack them, massive workload problems, justice and taxation and all sorts of corruption issues in the city, people who want to come and discourage Nehemiah. 
It's a little bit like reading the South African Sunday Times. It's lots of good intentions, just filled with chaos that seems to prevent any progress. But still, God's grace. We read in chapter 6, verse 15, the wall was completed in 52 days, on the 25th, month of the, of the 25th day of the month Elul. When our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations, what did they do? Well, they were intimidated and they lost their confidence. Why? Because they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. There's that theme again. God's goodness was so clear to his people at this time. It was front and center, but what they had not yet dealt with was their exile. See, God had allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to come and take his people away because his people had abandoned God. In their sin, they had completely walked away from God's law. And so in chapter 8, we see Ezra stand in front of the people as a priest, and he reads God's law to them. And the people weep and they mourn. They are brokenhearted over their sin. On one hand, they look to the side and they see this brand new city wall, and they're reminded and they recognize that God has in fact always been good to them. And then they see their sin and they weep. But Ezra won't have it. He calls them away from their weeping. And he says in chapter 8, verse 9, that this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. Rather, he says to them, don't grieve. Because why? The Lord, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And shortly after this, the Jews confess their sin. They fast. They cover themselves. They mourn over their sin. And the Lord accepts their sacrifices and their vows to follow him. And so here we find a new nation, a previously far from God nation, and now having been brought back to God, how do they respond to the grace of God which has been given to them? Well, the only appropriate response for any of us when God shows us grace is what? Celebration, thanksgiving, joy, and praise. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in chapter 12, verse 27, at the dedication of the war. And Nehemiah couldn't help but burst into celebration. And so he calls for the Levites to come and purify the people, the city, the gates, the walls. And this is where we pick up on the first major change in God's people. These people had just been restored back to God, had an incredible moment of revival amongst the city. They could have walked around feeling very proud of themselves and very religious, but instead they understood that even now they couldn't simply stroll into the presence of God. They were sinners, and even their hands' work was full of sin. And so the priests come to purify them. God continues to show them grace, and he sets them apart for worship. And it's here where we see the bulk of our text, and the focus changed from seeing God's faithfulness to praising God for the joy which he has given us. And this goes all the way from verse 31 to verse 43. And this section is chock and block full of those names, uh, places, various people, instruments, and so if we try to break it up into a few smaller chunks, I think we'll be able to get a little bit of a, a better idea for this passage. And so we'll start with the two processions. In verse 31, Nehemiah calls for the leaders of Israel and appoints two great processions to give thanks. The first group starts in the south, and it goes counterclockwise, or for you guys this way, uh, to the east, and, and the other went around the other side of the wall. Now, for myself personally, over the last few years, there's been quite a few major processions around the world, full of famous and important people. The guards, the uniforms, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty is always quite incredible. Kings and queens draped in gold and jewels, surrounded by pomp and processions, uh, loud triumphant music, celebration from the people as they watch and cheer and take selfies. 
little bit of a contrast to the passage we find ourselves in. It's the people of God walking on top of the walls that they've just built. No royals passing through the middle of the crowds, rather the crowds passing over what God has done. You can almost imagine the conversations that were happening between the singing and the praising and the celebration. Friends pointing out to one another, that's the piece of the wall that I worked on. Fathers and sons pointing out proudly to the pile of stones that they had labored on for almost two months. Each gate they passed, another sign of God's grace. Each boulder, each rock, each stone, and each pebble, nothing but grace. The singing must have been absolutely incredible. As they walked, they sang, they shouted, and they praised God. These processions had one job, and that was to worship. And church family, is this not all that different from what God has called us to today as a church? We ought to be a worshiping people. We should be far less concerned about tomorrow because Jesus said tomorrow will be concerned about itself. And rather, we should be far more invested in yesterday because it's yesterday that reminds us of God's goodness. We should be looking back to what God has done to be able to stoke our hearts to worship. We ought to look at the boulders and the rocks and the pebbles of our ministries, the leaders, the children, the lessons, the resources, the juices and the biscuits, the changed hearts, the mended souls, those who are now confident and those who are now hopeful. This is what should cause us to celebrate, to worship. Fathers and mothers should point out to their children the goodness of God and what he's done in this church. Youth leaders, teachers, members of this church should boast in God's goodness. When you look at what God has done for you, firstly in saving you from your sin, from the wrath and anger of God against your sin, and how he placed it on Jesus Christ on the cross so that we can be freed from our sin and from the condemnation and punishment our sin deserves, how he sustains you and even gives you grace for tomorrow, how he cares and concerns himself with our needs, does this result in worship in your life? When we see the goodness of God in Honeyridge, especially thinking this morning of our youth and children's ministries, how our needs are met year by year, how our ministries are sustained by God's grace, how so many leaders are provided for, how many young people are coming to saving faith, how some are being baptized, and as a challenge to us as a church, how even some high schoolers are inquiring about church membership. Does this result in worship in our church? Back to our passage, we see these two processions come to the house of God. Nehemiah rightly understood that the worship of God was not an individual experience, but it was something which draws all of God's people together in praise and worship. And it's important to see that this gathering of God's people is not a 21st century idea. It's not a religious one. God's people have always gathered to worship. And as Clinton often rightly says, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. And if I can rather add, there is no such thing as an obedient, worshiping lone ranger Christian. Yes, you can sing in your car. Yes, you can worship at work. Yes, you can have family worship. Yes, you can sing around the campfire on holiday. And those are wonderful, and we must do those. But if you're a Christian, God has called you away from yourself, away from individualism, and he has put you into a community, into a fellowship, and into a people. And Hebrews 10.25 reminds us to not neglect this gathering together of God's people. So it's not enough to simply sit in our lounge with Christians having a Bible study on a Wednesday. That's still not church. It's not the gathering. God calls you, if you're a Christian, to gather. Not as an option, 
Not if you have nothing else to do or if there's no hobby to attend to, but as the fundamental part of the Christian life because we were made to worship. Look at the elements of the Christian life. Salvation is how God builds his church. Baptism is in the context of the church. Communion is to be taken with the gathered church. Musical worship is given to God's gathered people, the church. And even the fruit of our lives is meant to be evaluated, corrected, and lovingly applied by the church. How do you think about the church and its worship? When you come, do you engage fully? Do you sing loudly? Do you listen carefully? Do you seek to love genuinely? Or do you find your heart maybe severely underwhelmed with this whole Sunday experience? See, if we need the music to be a certain style, our worship leaders to dress and look and sound a certain way, for the prayers to be shorter and for the preaching to be a little bit less boring, then it's perhaps not God that we're worshiping, but maybe ourselves. See, the worship of God is meant to be something which explodes out of a Christian because of who God is and what he has done. It's such a sad thing, but it's a real mystery how in today's day and age we can have churches with good theology but poor worship. These two things should never be found together. But sadly, many churches today struggle with Christians who come together to worship the God who will change their circumstances, give them their desires, and not teach anything controversial or threatening to their happiness. The God who is worshipped on many Sunday mornings around the world is no different from a genie in a bottle. If this God gets me through my tests, if this God gets me through my semester, my financial challenges, my concerns, my unhappiness, my preferences, me, 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 then I will worship. And all too often we are tempted and even find ourselves falling into this line of thinking, which is that I will worship God when my life gets sorted out, when my problems go away, when things get better, and when I'm just a little bit less busy. It took the Jews to have God grant the rebuilding of their walls, to be gracious to them again despite their sin, and to grant them favor with the king for them to start worshiping again. And before we're too quick to judge, if we were to evaluate our own lives, God's own goodness to us this year. Church, what have we maybe been missing? What goodness of God has potentially even been wasted on us as we sat uneager to worship? What blessings have been poured out into our thankless hearts? What nitpicking have we been doing when we've potentially been completely missing the point? The truth given to us in Scripture is that true worship, genuine worship, heartfelt worship, should not only exist when things are going well, but rather our worship should be in our circumstances, filtered through the character and the work of God. I love the way that Scripture speaks on the same thing. In the Psalms, we are reminded to worship God when? When things are going terribly. In the Proverbs, when we're not sure how to live. In the Prophets, when the world around us is falling away. In the Gospels, in our daily life. In the Epistles, in the life of the church. And here in our passage, we are reminded to worship God, not when the city is rebuilt, when the enemies are destroyed and conquered, and when everything is fantastic, not when our ministries are provided for, when the money looks good and when we have all the leaders we need, but rather to worship God because of who he is and what he has done. And who is this God? Well, he is the God who brought Israel back to himself despite their sin, who purified them for worship, who accepts their sacrifices, who loves them and keeps his covenant. And what has he done? Well, he has given them favor and grace 
love and mercy and provided for their needs and lifted them up. And what has this God done for us? Well, he is the same God who indeed continued his promise in bringing his people, the true Israel, his church to himself, despite our own sin, giving us forgiveness and pardon in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice in our place and has granted to you and I new life, eternal life in Christ. And no longer does he call us to simply read the law, but he gives us the Holy Spirit who now writes the law on our hearts, who produces fruit within our lives as we walk with him daily in faith and repentance. God has purified a people through himself, through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, is he not worthy to be worshipped? Are his deeds not worth celebrating? What will your response be to the Lord? We, Honeyridge Baptist Church, we claim his bride's name on our church sign, but do we live as his bride? We claim his son's name as our Lord, but do we respond to Jesus as our Lord? We claim God's name as our Father, but do we respond as to a loving Father? God has been so good to us. I want to give you all a few stats from this year's children and youth ministries, which I hope will be able to just elevate your worship and your celebration of the Lord's goodness to us as we leap forward in praise. These are rounded numbers. This year, there's been around 230 lessons, sermons, and devotions in our children and youth ministries. There's been about 750 small groups. There's been about 192 hours worth of teaching. We've had 18 teachers of God's Word. Between Fridays and Sundays, we have around 100 kids in attendance. We had 250 children at this year's holiday club. We had 27 leaders leading our children and youth ministries this year. We read, explained, and applied more than 550 verses across our ministries. We taught through 15 series with the youth and children. There were two youth that were baptized and three that are waiting for next year. We had multiple professions of faith and hundreds of hours of conversation and probably a few dozen milkshakes. We read in our passage in verse 43, on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Why? Because God had given them great joy. Church, has God not given us great joy? Has he not done so much? Will we wait before we sing? Will we wait before we praise? Will we not gather and celebrate the Lord? Bringing our time to a close, I'd like to just highlight a few areas of application. Firstly, look back. Look at what God has done. Marvel in it. Let it produce joy within your heart. Let it amaze you. Let it overwhelm you. Look back. Secondly, talk often about God's goodness. Whenever you can, speak about what God has done. Speak boldly, speak joyfully, celebrate, pray with thanksgiving in your heart. Tell your children of God's goodness. Tell your colleagues what God is doing in your church. Thirdly, gather in God's house to worship. Sundays, the Lord's day, is to be a special time of worship to God. Plan to be here. Don't have Sundays available to anything other than the worship of the Lord. Sing loudly when you come. 
Look for opportunities to care for and to be generous with the grace that God has given you. Share the gospel with unbelievers. Listen attentively. Pray that God will work in you and within us as a church, that he will cause revival even within our own walls. Be joyful, celebrate, and worship. It seems fit to end in celebration, and so I, I, I want to finish by reading Psalm 148 as a psalm of praise to the Lord for what he's done in 2022 through the youth and children's ministries here at the church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all the angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he has commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and you deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and the heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. And we can rightly say, for the church of God. Praise the Lord. Praise. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, this morning we come to praise you. Lord, for you are worthy to be praised. You are a good God who has done so much. You have poured out your grace and your love. Lord, also often we are an ungrateful people, but this morning, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be reminded in your word, even as we gather here at Honey Ridge Baptist Church, Lord, your church, as we look and see what you have done this year, Lord, may our hearts leap forward in praise for what you have done. May we celebrate you, Lord, for the great joy that you have caused us to rejoice in. Lord, you have been so good to us. Where we have stumbled and fallen, where we have forgotten, Lord, forgive us and remind us of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us in Romans 2 that it is your great love for us which is meant to lead us to repentance. And so, Lord, we see your love and we ask that you would change our hearts. Cause us, Lord, even at the end of this year to grow in our celebration of who you are, to grow in thanksgiving, to grow in worship. And even as our ministries close for the year, Lord, may even the rest we have be filled with conversations of your goodness. May our words be celebratory words. May our hearts be joyful, Lord. Restore us again next year, we pray, to back to these ministries that we might serve you with thanksgiving, with joy, and with praise. For you are worthy to be praised, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.